This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And of course, we're talking about the global coronavirus pandemic. Don't get too excited yet, but in some of the worst hotspots over the last few months, the infection curve is once again flattening out. Hospitalizations slowly starting to decrease. So question is, can we get it right this time? You know, it's funny you should say that because I, I, I wasn't getting excited by it at all. No, I wasn't because because we've been down this road. Yeah, it seems before. familiar, right? It's it's like deja vu all over again. And okay, we'll get into more about that later in the podcast. A group of medical experts and doctors are calling for a do-over. The Association of American Medical Colleges wants to reset the nation's response to the pandemic with a brand new roadmap that aims to correct the misinformation that's out there. So we're going to take a look at their new recommendations. It also includes further clarifications for face covering, straightening out all the conflicting messages about masks. Turns out too many people are wearing their masks the wrong way. Well, yeah, for one thing, you don't like wear it like on the back of your head. It's not like a a beard. You just put it underneath your chin. But it got to be over your... We (laughs) see all these people that walk around and it's like under their chin and it's like they think that it's for eating food and and to catch the <laughs> droppings. I mean, it's, it's not what it's, it's a for. a new invention. Yeah. The race is on, by the way, to find a vaccine against the virus. But when it becomes available, should you get it? And how often should you be vaccinated? You're going to hear from an expert who will answer some of the most frequently asked question. And if you believe that being in tip-top shape makes you largely immune, think again. Several elite athletes who've been infected have been left with some serious, long-lasting heart problems. The Sunbelt states of Arizona, California, and Texas slowly starting to regain control of the uh, coronavirus outbreak with uh, the so-called curve flattening. Hospitalizations are are easing up, but uh, unfortunately deaths from the virus still on the rise. But You know, we've been through this before. How do we not repeat the same mistakes, forgetting that there's still a very highly contagious and very deadly virus still circulating among all of us? Dr. Dina Grayson is an infectious disease physician, researcher, former director of medical services at Amgen. So are we in denial and just kidding ourselves, thinking we can stop the virus from roaring back because we close things, we open them, it comes back? Well, that's exactly right. And I warned about this many, many months ago. And I said, look, as soon as uh, we let our foot off the brake with this deadly virus, it, it's going to come right back. And that's the nature of this kind of virus. And um, the, the problem that we have here is that, you know, we've suddenly become sort of like used to 1,100 plus Americans dropping dead each day. I mean, right now in the state of Arizona, nearly one in every 1,500 residents is now dead from coronavirus. Okay, think, and nationwide, we're about one in every 2,000 Americans is dead from coronavirus. And this virus absolutely will be in the top 10 killers for this year in 2020. We just don't know how high it's going to be as far as killing the most people of any other uh, single cause. We have absolutely failed. And the bottom line, sadly, is that it goes right to the top. The buck stops in the White House, which, you know, there was too much denial, um, continued denial even recently, right? This is just going to go away, that cases are going down. And yet, you know, we, we're talking about flattening the curve, and we're still averaging 50,000 new cases every day, 
which is more than most countries have had overall. I mean, it is extremely sad situation here. Why aren't we frankly embarrassing? Why do you think we're not shocked by these numbers? And if if we didn't get phased by 160,000 deaths, do we get phased at 200,000? If it goes north of that, 250, 300, when do we wake up? Well, you know, I do think that increasingly that Americans are waking up. If you look at polling, how many people think schools should reopen? The vast majority of Americans say they shouldn't. The vast majority of Americans support uh, another lockdown. In fact, that's over, over, you know, definitely a majority. Majority of Americans support mask wearing because you know what? You can't spend death. People don't want to die. And when their relatives and loved ones are dying, and we now have a, a, a fair proportion of this country now says that they know someone who died of this disease and people are scared. And, you know, look, they, you know, I don't think people should be freaked out. But on the other hand, people need to be wary. We, we've seen what has happened. Ignorance in this situation sets you up to get sick and to potentially die. Let's talk about vaccines. Um, mm. So uh, the Russians uh, say they have a vaccine. Uh, we, in the, <laughs> we in the U.S., I know you're laughing already. We There's in, the answer. Yes. We in the U.S. are, say, are saying, uh, now you probably don't show us the, uh, the proof. Although it's really hard for this country to sort of take a high and mighty position when we are leading the world right now in coronavirus infections, hospitalizations and deaths. That said, is it possible... I mean, the Russians do have a, a rich history, going back to Soviet times, uh, of medical research. Could they be on to something? Well, the Russians certainly have a, a deep history of um, bioweapons research in violation of international treaties. That is for certain. Uh, but they're well, that not counts, known... doesn't it? <laughs> right. I mean, They've been looking right. into something. <laughs> technically, technically speaking, uh, you know, but uh, but they're certainly not known for their prowess in developing. Um, uh, therapeutics and vaccines. And in fact, I can't think of a single drug or vaccine here in the United States that was innovated in, in Russia. It just does not exist. So, um, you know, what they have essentially done is they've taken the equivalent of wh- where, you know, our most advanced vaccines for coronavirus are now, right, which is very early data from very early clinical trials in scores of patients. And they went ahead and said, okay, we're going to go ahead and approve it which is we would, we, we would not do here. It would be unethical because we don't have enough information to prove. You can show that the vaccine right now, we know that some of these vaccine candidates can induce antibodies and some sort of T-cell immune response, but we have no proof that, that they actually protect you from either getting infected, getting sick, or dying. And we, have, we don't have enough evidence that they're safe. That takes tens of thousands of people to be injected with the vaccine and you have to follow people over time. So what the Russians have done is literally what everyone's here, the anti-vaxxers are keep screaming and that is happening here, which is not, they've completely cut all the corners. And that potentially compromises patient safety. Um, so I wouldn't go anywhere near it. I, I can't ever see that the FDA would, uh, you know, approve such a vaccine here in this country. So it's not going to affect us. But I guess um, Putin decided that he wanted to sort of uh, say, hey, we were the first. But um you know, no one's seen the data outside of Russia. They haven't published the data. And certainly um, those of us that are in this space um, look at this at various scans. Dr. Dina Grayson, infectious disease physician, researcher, former director of medical services at Amgen. Doctor, thanks. The United States had more than 5 million cases of COVID-19. 
and the number, it keeps going up and up and up. So the American Association of Medical Colleges hopes to reset the nation's response to the pandemic with a kind of a new roadmap, you know, based on expertise from medical doctors, scientists, and educators. Dr. Ross McKinney, Chief Scientific Officer, the American Association of Medical Colleges, spoke with KRLD's Chris Summer. It's important to reset because if you look around, we clearly are not getting the virus under control, and it should be possible for us to get it under control. So um, we provided a series of steps that we think are just logical, common-sense approach to uh, doing things that people nationally and in their own homes could be doing to help limit the spread of the virus. And I am going to guess that masks are a major part of what you just said. Uh, That is an excellent guess because it's true. Um, If everybody wore masks, um, we would probably be pretty much past this, or at least in the same sort of state that countries like Korea and Japan are, where it's pretty much under control. Um, The fact that we've had people who resist it for a variety of reasons, I mean, personal freedom, But the trick is that personal freedom is making it so that all of us are not free and are having to continue to deal with this. So our bias is, you know, everybody should be wearing masks and doing it appropriately. The Association of American Medical Colleges has also come out with consensus guidance on face coverings because, let's face it, there are different types of face coverings and lots of different ways we are all finding of wearing them. So another expert from the association, Dr. Atul Grover, joined KYW's Mad Leon to break down the do's and don'ts of masking up. When I'm out, I see really kind of the gauntlet of masks from some stuff that's really intense to somebody who's tied a dress shirt around their face, and I'm not making that up. Uh, What are the keys to a good mask. If we're trying to do our best here and we're really out there looking, what should we be looking for? Well, you want to find something that's cloth that has at least two layers, if possible. Three layers is ideal. And the idea here is very simple from a scientific perspective. You want as many barriers between you and the outside as possible. There was a study that was released uh, late last week by researchers at Duke University in Science. And what they said was, you know, basically, Everything that you could choose, uh, with the exception maybe of, of one thing, um, is going to be better than not wearing a mask or a face covering. Where they found an exception was with a fleece gaiter. And it's likely that because of the shape of that, the looseness, the ability for stuff to escape on the sides, and also the fact that that material is probably not as tightly woven together and easier to breathe through, uh, it's going to let more stuff out. So the key here really is making sure that you have appropriate numbers of layers, that you have something that, you know, does make you feel like you've got a barrier in front of you. If it feels easy to breathe through, it's probably not as effective. And you want to make sure that you have those seals both above the nose, below the chin, around the mouth so that you're not just breathing out to the side or on top of your mask. I see a lot of people that have a mask on, but it's under the nose. Either it's slipped down and they left it there or it almost looks like they designed it or set it to are that is that effective at all or is that really kind of defeating the purpose well i i would say it's it's defeating the purpose you're essentially you know think about the mask as a as a simple barrier you're trying to hold as much of your own exhalation coughs sneezes in in your own space right and have those droplets hit the mask 
anywhere you let that escape is going to make it less effective. You know, when I point at your nose, it may not be that you've got snot coming out of it and I need you to wipe it. It may be, I just need you to pull your mask up. How important is it to, to kind of mainstream masks and to, to, to make it something that, that people are, are used to? Because amazingly, I, it still kind of amazes me they've managed to become political, but yeah. how important is it to just get this into the mainstream where it's just part of life? You grab your wallet, you grab your keys, you grab your cell phone, add the mask to that. That's it. If you're grabbing your phone, grab your mask, bring it with you. You know, um, yes, there are times you don't need to wear it, but you don't know when that's going to be. And the safest thing to do is to wear it. I think what's a challenge. Look, we're all frustrated. You know, I believe people are doing the best that they can. They're trying to do the right thing. They want to protect their kids and their parents and their siblings and their spouses. Um, but people are frustrated. They're frustrated with, you know, the limits to, to their own ability to move freely. They're, they're frustrated with the fact that science evolves and that, you know, um, sometimes you've got to change along with it. And I understand that. Um, normalizing masks is not something we've done in this country. I continue to get up every day and walk around. If I go to the grocery store, I feel like, you know, I've, I've woken up in some post-apocalyptic movie. It is not natural for us as Americans. We're asking you to get beyond that and do something for yourself, for your neighbors, and, and for Pete's sake, do it so that the scientist that's out there that's going to discover the vaccine faster, that's going to discover a treatment faster, doesn't get killed, right? You know, think about what we can do here to advance that for each other. Yes, it feels stupid. Yes, it's uncomfortable. You know what's more uncomfortable? Getting intubated and put on a ventilator. Trust me, you don't want me doing that to you. There are so many unknowns when it comes to a potential vaccine against the coronavirus. There are a number of runners in the race as well for a COVID-19 vaccine. But what should we know before we pick a vaccine if it becomes available? Also, do we need to get vaccinated more than once? Dr. Susan Ellenberg, Interim Chair of the Department of Biostatistics, Epidemiology, Informatics at the University of Pennsylvania, Perlman School of Medicine, answered some burning questions from KCBS's Stan Bunger. You're the health professional and expert. What do you need to hear to get a vaccine? Well, I need to hear the data from the large-scale trials that um, are now being started. There's at least a couple, I think, that are ongoing and more that will be started fairly soon. So I want to see um, whether the vaccine does seem to protect people and doesn't cause any major uh, toxicities or any major health problems. And if those data look very good, and after the FDA reviews it, and along with their expert committees that will review it, uh, I would certainly be in line to get one. Uh, if I'm in good health and haven't gotten this virus, should I wait for a second round of vaccines to be developed? Huh. Well, um, I, first of all, there are a lot of people who are in good health um, who have gotten really, really sick. This is a very scary virus. It is true that the vast majority of people who get infected won't get really sick, and a substantial proportion may not even know that they were sick. We know that there are people uh, a lot of people who are asymptomatic. But what should scare people is the proportion of people who do get really sick and die. And there have been young, healthy people in that category, um, even though there's, they're at less risk of that than others. It's not zero risk. So I think once a vaccine is shown to be, uh, is shown to be effective and it seems to be safe, uh, I would think, you know, everybody would want to would want to get a vaccine. We all want to get back to our normal lives as quickly as possible. And a vaccine that's 
highly effective is going to really help us do that in the fastest way possible. The next one says, if a vaccine had been developed for SARS-1 back in the uh, early 2000s, would we have been able to stop uh, this this virus, COVID-19, SARS-2, today? Well, I, I, I doubt that that vaccine, a vaccine that would have been effective for that SARS, would necessarily have been effective for this one. It's certainly possible. But one thing that is true is that the work that was done, uh, there was some preliminary work done uh, for that disease, uh, and it didn't really get finished because that fizzled out uh, the way many of us hoped this one would fizzle out, but didn't. There was also something called the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome, MERS, that's a very, also a very similar um, a very similar coronavirus, and people have been working on vaccines for that. So the work that's been going on for these other coronaviruses certainly gave people a head start in trying to develop vaccines for what we're dealing with now. We know the common cold is also a type of coronavirus. We've always heard you can't have a cold every year and never have the same one. How can we feel safe with a vaccine which may be irrelevant or ineffective on another strain? Yeah, so this, you know, <laughs> this just shows how little we actually know. We've only been dealing with this, uh, with this virus for a, you know, for a number of months, seven or eight months. So there's a lot we still don't know. What we do know, however, is this virus seems to mutate more slowly than, say, a flu virus does. Um, and so uh, while we can't be sure how long it would be effective, um, there's reason to believe that it would continue to be effective. After all, we have vaccines for a lot of other diseases uh, other than flu, that people take year after year after year after year, and they seem to still be effective. So I don't think it's a major problem, except for flu, where um, there's enough of a, a different strains that come in that a vaccine can't be assumed to be effective from year to year. The man scheduled to be the starting pitcher for the Boston Red Sox in its COVID-shortened season, his name, Eduardo Rodriguez. Now, he's just 27 years old. He's Six foot two inches, 200 pounds of muscle, big guy, an elite professional athlete, very much in his prime. But but something really scary happened to Rodriguez on his way to starting the Red Sox season. He got a coronavirus infection that not only made him very sick, but it may have brought him long lasting heart condition. Dr. Jonathan Kim, sports cardiologist, Emory University Woodruff Health Sciences Center. So in a lot of cases with these athletes, so in a lot of cases with these athletes, we're talking about myocarditis. Can you walk us through what that is and what it means for somebody? So myocarditis uh, is uh, defined as inflammation of the heart. It's typically brought on by viral infection. So not just COVID-19, but uh, a standard viral infection. It's diagnosis that we've obviously known about for um, for a long time, and we know that this can happen. And uh, what can occur, again, is uh, direct viral invasion of the heart, uh, inflammatory response, um, and then that ultimately leads to kind of the clinical syndrome of myocarditis. So uh, how does the coronavirus exacerbate this? Well, to be clear, we don't know a ton about coronavirus. I mean, you guys know that. We hear it every day. We learn things about it all the time. If I could just take a step back, and if we go back to when coronavirus was first kind of came on the scene, much of the data that we learned about the virus came from sicker, hospitalized patients. And we did see in, in these those patients a very high degree of cardiac injury. We still don't quite understand all the underlying mechanisms. Myocarditis is just one hypothesized cause as to 
uh, what's going on there. So again, we're still learning. Um, but as it relates to athletes, what we worry about again is, um, or really anybody in general who may not be as sick, not be in the hospital. The question's always been is, is there a predilection for cardiac issues, uh, even in those patients who aren't as sick? Uh, and when you think about athletes, I was a part of a group um, from the American College of Cardiology that put forth a set of expert consensus recommendations thinking about this, a very conservative return-to-play algorithm ensuring that we can't find evidence of any sort of cardiac injury or inflammation before a highly competitive athlete can get back uh, can get back to the field or the training room. So it's something that certainly has been on our mind, even going back to the springtime. Is it, so if it's untreated, you can have major problems, right? And if it's going on and you are an elite athlete, is the danger that you go out there and the blood really starts pumping and you're working hard and then you exacerbate the problem? In, in simple terms, you're using your heart more than just somebody who's like me sitting right here in the studio. Yeah, I'll, I'll answer both questions. The first question uh, about long-lasting uh, issues. So myocarditis is a very variable, it's a highly variable condition. In fact, it can be subclinical. There's probably patients out there who had a very small burden of myocarditis and never knew they even had it. On the other side of the spectrum, people can get very, very sick uh, and die acutely from myocarditis. And then there's everybody in between. Uh, it's relatively rare in the general population. But going on to the second part of your question, the reason why we are worried about it in athletes is are two uh, reasons. First, when one engages in high-end intense training and exercise with active myocarditis, that could potentially make it worse. Uh, and then the second reason is uh, kind of what you mentioned, which is that if you have active inflammation and you engage in highly intense activities, that could potentially precipitate a dangerous heart rhythm, uh, which could even lead to a cardiac arrest. Uh, and myocarditis is certainly one of the conditions when you look at causes of sudden death in athletes over the years, uh, that is on the list of things, uh, of potential diagnoses that we uh, are worried about. Is it easy to diagnose, or can you have it for long periods of time and never know it until it's too late? Yeah, again, it can be subclinical. I mean, you could be asymptomatic and potentially have it and, and never know it and probably have no longstanding ramifications. In terms of symptoms, uh, if a patient presents with typical cardiac symptoms, there's a different uh, array of tests that we use, uh, such as an EKG, imaging tests like an echocardiogram, which is an ultrasound, even an MRI of the heart to get really detailed pictures of the heart muscle and blood tests, all of which can give you evidence to give you the diagnosis of uh, myocarditis. What can you do for it other than prescribing some rest? That's ex that's the tried and true treatment. It is You have to take it easy. You certainly can't uh, be engaged with high-intense physical activities, um, and you let the body heal. You let the inflammation resolve. So when myocarditis is diagnosed in an athlete, we actually have guidelines that we abide by, uh, sponsored by the ACC as well as the American Heart Association. And what we do is actually have a period of at least three months where there's no exercise training. Um, it's usually three to six months, but at a minimum three months um, where the athlete is not allowed back to training. And then after that three-month period, there's, a uh, again, a repeat battery of tests to look for resolution of inflammation um, for improved or just ensuring that the cardiac function is normal. And if everything is normal, then the athlete actually can get back to uh, participation. Do you think we're going to be even more surprised as the months and years go by about the ramifications of the coronavirus, especially when it comes to potential cardiac involvement? 
I do. We're still learning about COVID in the heart. Again, as I mentioned, the underlying reasons why we see this degree of cardiac injury in very sick hospitalized patients, uh, there's certainly hypotheses out there and potential explanations that we still don't quite know. And so moving forward, we are. There's much we don't know about um, really uh, the explanation for some of these observations that we've seen. So I do think we're going to continue to learn more. Um, we need to learn more because there are many, many unanswered questions. And we've already seen some dominoes fall, some very big ones when it comes to sports. And uh, what do you think this does, just this worry in the back of people's minds to some of the other leagues that haven't made their decision yet or who are pushing forward? Well, I also think it's really important to emphasize that there's really two issues here. And one is really out of my purview, and that's the public health aspect. Of it. And that's really probably the most important, which is spread of disease. Uh, and that, I think, takes precedence in terms of various leagues making decisions. Uh, I'm obviously not a consultant for the leagues that have made decisions already, but I'm sure they weighed all these options. The cardiac aspect is a very important part, no doubt. Um, but you have to kind of think uh, think through these things, uh, I think, separately in some regard. And uh, again, think about the fact that what we're really trying to do right now is limit spread of disease. Um, and then, of course, there are all the other ramifications as well. Dr. Jonathan Kim, sports cardiologist, Emory University. Children often copy what their parents do. Now they can follow their folks' footsteps by playing with home office toys. Oh, boy. Fisher Price <laughs> Just released. Just what parents yeah, need. Yeah. Fisher Price released a My Home Office set for preschoolers. It features a toy laptop with a toy smartphone, a toy headset, and even a toy coffee cup. Kids shouldn't be drinking coffee anyway. I mean, they really shouldn't. Put milk in there. Yeah. The toy maker says kids can become the boss of their own work. Well, that's certainly not reflecting the real world, is it? (laughs) (laughs) The My Home office set is priced at just, you know, I love that, just $24.99, right? Available in stores and online. They're going to come up. You know what's going to happen. Kids are going to be on the toy phone, come up with the cup. Can you refill this? And then when the mom says something to the dad, they're going to, I'm on the phone. (laughs) You can listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. What good is a toy coffee cup? Do they have a toy coffee machine? No. Just, what good is the cup? You need the whole barista set. Yeah.